The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 36, and I shall read from verse 16 to the end of verse 20, from verse 16 to verse 20, in the 36th chapter of the book of the prophet Ezekiel. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of men, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. Wherefore, I poured my fury upon them, for the blood that they had shed upon the land, and for their idols wherewith they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the heathen, and they were dispersed through the countries, according to their way, and according to their doings I judged them. And when they entered unto the heathen, whether they went, they profaned my holy name when they said to them, These are the people of the Lord and are gone forth out of his land. Now, we begin considering this great statement, a statement which indeed does not end at that 20th verse, but goes right on to the end of the chapter. A word of the Lord has come to the prophet Ezekiel from God to be addressed to the people. Now last Sunday night we just began considering it by putting it like this. Here are the children of Israel in trouble. They're, they're out of their own land. They've been carried away captive. A powerful enemy came and invaded them smashed down the walls and the ramparts of their great city, Jerusalem, smashed their noble buildings, including the temple, left the place a heap of rubble, and carried away the people to their own country of Babylon. And here they are, the children of Israel now, in Babylon, in captivity. And amongst them was this man, Ezekiel, the prophet of God sitting down by their side, one of them, by the waters of Babylon. Slaves, captives. And they look back and think sometimes of their own country, their own land, and the city Jerusalem. And they wonder why they are where they are. And it was in that situation that God gave this message to his servant, his prophet Ezekiel to deliver to this captive people. And we indicated that here we have a, a most typical biblical statement. It's one of large numbers of such statements which are to be found scattered throughout the scriptures. The fact is, there is only one message in the Bible from beginning to end, put in different ways, at different times, with different pictures and illustrations, but, it, but it's always the same message. There is only one message. It's the message that comes from God. And that's what this book is. It isn't a human book. It isn't men's ideas. It's the word of the Lord. Ezekiel hadn't been spending days and weeks and months in study trying to understand the situation and at last felt that he discovered it and went to address the people. Not at all. While he was sitting there in helplessness and hopelessness, with his fellow countrymen, the word of the Lord came to him. And as I indicated, that's the only hope for the world tonight. And the word that comes to the world this evening is precisely this old word. Here is a perfect summary of the gospel. And we're going, God willing, to work it out together. Now, I ended last Sunday night by saying this. This message is a complete whole. It's got parts, but the parts are parts of a whole. And there is nothing that is so vital for us to grasp and to understand at the very beginning than this. 
we either accept this message as a whole or else we don't. You can't take it in bits and portions. The glory of this biblical message is that each step leads to another. The parts are not disparate. They're not unrelated. I've often put it like this. If I had no other reason for believing that this is the word of God, its logic alone would have been enough for me. It starts with a position. It goes from it to the next and then to the next. And it's always a logical whole. It's entire. It's a perfect piece. And I say, if we don't accept every single part, we'll never know the whole, and we'll never experience the great salvation that it has to give us. Now then, there's our introduction. The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, and we looked at it in general last Sunday night. We now begin to consider the particulars. What is the first thing that it says? Well, the first thing that it deals with is this. Why are things as they are? What is wrong with men? Now, that was the first thing that God told this prophet Ezekiel to say to the captive children of Israel. To me, it's uh, uh, certainly an obvious thing to do. You just start with people where they are. And you ask the obvious question, what are the children of Israel doing in Babylon? Why aren't you back in your own country? Why aren't you in the city of Jerusalem? What are you doing here? It investigates that and pronounces God's judgment upon that. Now, the Bible always starts with that. Whether we like it or not. The Bible always starts there. I say whether we like it or not because I'm very well aware of the fact that the modern man doesn't like that. The modern man says, you know, you needn't spend any time in diagnosing me and in talking about sin. Give me the remedy. He wants to be healed quickly. He doesn't like to be probed and searched and shown himself as he rarely is. He says, there's no need for all that. Uh, just tell me about the love of God and how everything can be put right in a second. That's what I want. But, you know, God doesn't do it like that. God starts with us where we are. You're in Babylon. What are you doing there? How did you ever come to be there? There is no return until we see absolutely clearly why we've ever got there. Now, that's, I say, the point at which the Bible always begins. Why is man what he is? Why is the world as it is this evening? What is the explanation of this trouble? I say that this seems to me so self-evident that I frankly find it very difficult to understand the mentality that objects to this. Of course, uh, you may prefer the sort of doctor who, when you're ill, uh, comes into your bedroom and, without examining you at all, says, I hear that you've got pain. Very well, I'll give you a shot of morphia. And the pain's gone. And you feel perfectly happy and all is well. And this pleasant doctor who hasn't wasted any time at all in examining you and searching you does it so quickly and off he goes. Well, you may prefer that sort of doctor. But I can assure you that you may be doing an extremely dangerous thing. Surely the first thing that is absolutely necessary is that the cause of your trouble may be discovered. What is it that's giving you the pain? What is it in your constitution that leads to this condition? Now, to medicate symptoms, to give relief to a man before you've discovered the cause of it, is not only a dangerous thing, you're not being a friend to him even, you're being his enemy. You're doing something that is dangerous to the whole of his life and his future existence. In other words, it surely should be accepted and recognized by all as a basic principle. 
that before you begin even to consider treatment, you must establish an accurate diagnosis. And it may be a painful thing. It may be very annoying to an impatient person. Why should this doctor take a sample of my blood? Why should he send me to be x-rayed? Why should he call in somebody else and have this investigation and that? Why doesn't he get on with it, says the patient, and give me relief from my pain and from my suffering? I know. But it's a very poor doctor who allows himself to be dictated to by his patient. The man who knows his job, who knows his business, knows that honesty alone insists upon his discovering accurately and exactly, if he can, the cause of this man's ill. Now, that is exactly what the Bible does. Whether we like it or not, I say the Bible starts with its doctrine of sin. Because all our troubles are due to sin. Now the Bible does that, you see. That's why it gives us those early chapters of Genesis. There's the explanation at the very beginning. It does it in the case of the flood. Same thing. Does it in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah. Just another repetition. It does it in the case of many an individual, kings and others, who started so well and who ended so badly. What's the matter with them? Always the same thing, sin. It gives us this wonderful ob object lesson in the, in the case of the children of Israel. That's why we've got all this record about them. They are the perfect illustration of this biblical doctrine. And we look at them and we see all this happening. And you get exactly the same in the New Testament. You see, that was Paul's sermon, wasn't it, in Antioch in Pisidia, which I read to you at the beginning, out of the 13th chapter of Acts. He just went through the history to show them why things were as they were. Now here, I say we've got a perfect example and illustration of this very thing. And now, my dear friends, I'm calling your attention to it, not because... I'm interested in some academic study of what this man Ezekiel said to his fellow countrymen so long ago... I'm interested in it and I'm calling your attention to it because it's precisely the same this evening. The world is in trouble. Man is unhappy and wretched. The whole of the human race is sitting beside strange waters. There is something radically and hopelessly wrong. Well, what is it? Well, now, let's listen to what Ezekiel has got to say. The first thing he lays down is this, and it is the first thing the Bible lays down in every other section. Man's troubles are entirely due to his own fault. Man is as he is as the result of his own actions. The world is tonight as it is because it consists of men and women who live and behave as they do. Now, that's its fundamental postulate. And again, of course, you see how far removed is this biblical analysis and diagnosis from what the world likes to believe about itself. But how true, how realistic, how plain, how blunt, how honest is the Bible with us telling us the blunt truth about ourselves. And yet mankind never likes this. You see, that's where its utter inconsistency comes in. Very often, to use my medical analogy once more, there is a type of patient who says, and he's very proud of himself as being such a man, he says to his doctor, now look here, he says, I want to know the exact truth about myself. Don't keep it from me. Don't, don't shield me. Don't, don't hide anything from me. I'm one of those men I like to know the worst. Tell me exactly what's the matter. And yet if you do that with him in a spiritual sense, he dislikes you. How illogical and how inconsistent man is in sin. Well, very well, here it is. This is the fundamental statement. Man brings his own troubles upon himself. Why does he do so? Well, the analysis which Ezekiel gives us, I will summarize for you and put to you in the form of a number of principles. It is because man fails to remember and to realize 
certain fundamental facts. What are them? Well, here's the first. The most important and vital thing in man's life is his relationship to God. That's the most important thing of all. And the whole tragedy of the human race is that it forgets that. It puts other things first. It brings in other considerations. Now look at the whole world this evening. In its predicament and in its problem. What's it doing? Holding conferences. Having consultations. Calculating here and there. Trying this and that. How much talk is there about God and about our relationship to God? And yet it's the whole central essential cause of all our troubles. Man is as he is this evening because like the children of Israel of old, he has turned his back upon God. Now that is, says the Bible, the one key to everything else. It doesn't matter how right other things may be. If this is wrong, eventually everything will be wrong. Because nothing can finally be right unless man himself is right with God. But let me go on and work that out in detail. There's the overall principle. Man in relationship to God. Now the first error man makes is this. That he does not appreciate what God does for him and what God gives him. Listen to Ezekiel's way of putting that. Son of man, he says to Ezekiel, says God to Ezekiel, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. You see what he says? When the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it. Now what he means by that is this. Here is the trouble with the children of Israel, says God to Ezekiel, and go and tell them this. I put them in their own land. It was I who took them there. I gave them a perfect start. There they were, down in Egypt, their slaves. You see, I'm simply repeating Paul's sermon in Antioch of Pisidia. There they were, the children of Israel, absolutely helpless as slaves in Egypt, with the taskmasters trying to get them to make bricks without sufficient straw and slashing them with their whips. They were absolutely helpless. They could never have come out. They would all have been destroyed. The word had been given to the midwives to destroy the firstborn males. You remember the story. In utter helplessness. Well, how did they ever get out of that? And how did they ever find themselves in the land of Israel? Well, God says, I brought them there. I gave them the land. I brought them out with a strong hand in their utter helplessness. I read them, led them through the Red Sea. I took them into a land that was flowing with milk and honey. I gave it them for a possession. I destroyed their enemies before them. I handed it over to them. I gave them their own land and they dwelt in it. God had put them there and had given them a perfect start entirely of his own goodness and mercy and kindness and of his love. Everything that was necessary for them and their well-being and their life and their prosperity, God had given it all to them. They dwelt in their own land. And nothing need ever have gone wrong with them. Well, why did it go wrong? The answer is, that they didn't appreciate what God had done for them and had given them. They began themselves to defile it by their own way and by their own doings. That is why I say that man brings his own troubles upon himself. He's given a perfect start by God. Now that's the whole story of the human race. You remember how at the beginning God made men and he made him perfect, and he sent him in the Garden of Eden. It's called paradise. 
Nothing could have been better. It was an ideal and an idyllic life. Man hadn't to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. He simply had to pick the fruit and enjoy it. There was perfect harmony. And God spoke to men and came down and dwelt with men. There was wonderful communion. Man starts in paradise. Why are things as they are? Well, it was because men didn't appreciate paradise. He thought he knew of something better and could do something better. That is why he's rendered without any excuse whatsoever. He brings it all down upon himself. Or take a perfect instance of the same thing as it's put in the New Testament in our Lord's incomparable parable of the prodigal son. Look at that young man in the foreign country, in the far country. There he is in the field, eating the husks that were given to the swine. Nobody with him. All his companions have gone. They've left him. When his money left, they left. They used him while he'd got the money. The moment it was exhausted, they all walked away. No man gave unto him. Absolutely alone, in rags, isolated, eating husks fit only for swine. What's a man doing there? Who is he? You know the answer? He was a young man who'd had a wonderful upbringing. And who was in a position of great happiness in his home with his father, surrounded by all that was necessary, having sufficient and having everything good to look forward to. How does he ever arrive there? Well, it's his own deliberate action. He didn't appreciate his home. He was in his own land like the children of Israel. Yeah, yes, but he didn't think it was good enough. He knew of something better. He'd heard of some strange country, and away he went to it. Now, that's the biblical case with regard to man's essential trouble. God gave men a perfect start. And man is as he is because he didn't appreciate God's perfection. All our troubles are due to the fact, I say, that we will not stay where God put us. We will not be what God would have us be. That's the initial trouble, always. The son of man, son of man, when, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their own doings. What a foolish people. What a foolish people given the promised land and all its glories and all its blessings ever to defile it and to find themselves in the captivity of Babylon. But that is still the trouble with the human race. But let me go on to put it in the form of my second principle. Man deliberately turns against God and chooses his own path. Now, that is what the children of Israel have done. Why did they do it, you think? In the land flowing with milk and honey, with everything that a people could ever have desired. Oh, what went wrong? Well, it was just this. They objected to God's laws. They objected to God's ways. And they began to set up their own likes and dislikes in the place of God's clearly revealed law. You see, when God brought those children of Israel out of the captivity of Babylon, out of the captivity of Egypt, he called a halt in the wilderness. And then he called Moses, the leader of the people, up into the mount. And he told him certain things to tell the people. And this is what he said. He said, go back. Tell them that they are my people. A chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a people for my own peculiar possession. Go and tell them, said God to Moses, that I have done what I've done for them in bringing them out of Egypt because I've set my affection upon them. 
I've made them for myself. I want to bless them. I want to show my glory in them and through them. Well, now then, go and tell them that because that is the relationship, that they have got to live in a given way. And he gave them the Ten Commandments. And he gave them the moral law. They were not allowed to live as they liked. They were not allowed to live as other people lived. The other nations could marry whoever they liked, not the children of Israel. The other nations could do what they liked seven days a week, not so the children of Israel. They were told that there was one day the Sabbath that they had to honor and to keep. There are certain things they are not to do because they're God's people. But the other nations did all these things very well. That was the whole trouble with the children of Israel. They said, it's all right, we are glad to be in the land flowing with milk and honey, but we do object to these laws, this narrowness, this rigidity. This isn't life. Look at the other nations, they said. We'd like to live like that, and they began to do so. It was a deliberate act of rebellion. But again, you see, the children of Israel in doing that simply repeated what Adam had done in the Garden of Eden. That's the whole story of the race. Adam and Eve in paradise with absolute perfection in every respect. And yet, you see, when the devil came and said to them, Do you think this is being fair to you? You're not allowed to eat of that tree. God's keeping you down. He's keeping you under. You're not free men. Don't you think it's about time you exerted your free will, said the devil to Adam and Eve? Are you going to be held in and kept down like that all your life? Why don't you have liberty and freedom? Why don't you take of that? Nothing will go wrong with you if you do. And they believed him. They listened to him. And they deliberately rebelled against God. That's the whole cause of the trouble in the world this evening. It is from that one action that all troubles stem. And it is still the trouble with men. You would have thought that with the world as it is tonight and all human expedience having been tried and all the wisdom of the politicians and the statesmen and the philosophers and all others having been tried and having led to nothing, you would have thought that at long last men would say, well now then let's turn back to God. But why not? Oh, they say, that life's so narrow. They'd like the blessings of God. They like the milk and the honey still, but they don't like the laws and the commandments. And they know that to live according to God's way means this. God's way is moral, it's ethical, it's just, it's true. He isn't merely a God who dispenses blessings indiscriminately. Because you're my people, you live in a given way. There is always a condition attached to every promise in the word of God. But man, I say, didn't like that. He doesn't like it still. And it is because of this law of God that he deliberately turns against him. And though he's in his own land, he defiles it and does things that lead to, be, to his being driven out of it. It's still the same. But in turn, that leads to the next principle, which I put in this form. And it is the thing above everything else that is emphasized in these particular verses, 17 to 20. Man doesn't realize the utter enormity of such action. It's terrible character. Or if you like it in other language, man's trouble is that he doesn't realize the true nature of sin. And especially sin as it is in the sight of God. Now you see, here are the children of Israel, they're there by the waters of Babylon, and they're now very unhappy and very miserable. They're very sorry for themselves. And Ezekiel goes to them and says, I'll tell you why you're here and why you're now suffering. It's because of what you did when you were in your own land. Ah, the prophets told you then, God raised them up, he sent Isaiah, he sent Jeremiah, he sent 
Micah, he sent them one after another to you, and they remonstrated with you, and they warned you, and they said, you know, if you go on like this, God cannot bless you, and he will punish you, but you didn't listen. You didn't realize the enormity of your sin. And if you want to get out of this captivity and want to be back in your own land, you've got to realize it. Because though you're taken back again, if you repeat what you did before, it'll lead to this again. You must realize what sin is in the sight of God. Well, what is it? Well, these are the things he tells us. The first thing he tells us is that sin is something that defiles God's work. When the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it. By their own way and by their own doings. Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. They defiled the land. Oh, what a vital principle this is. And unless you and I realize something of the nature and the character of sin as it is in God's sight... I see no hope for us. This is what we're all guilty of. We defile God's work. It was his land. He put them there. He prepared it for them. But they defile it with their blood and with their idols and their abominations and all their sinful ways, all the horrible things of which they were guilty. It defiles, it pollutes the land. And had you realized, my friend, that that is the very essence of sin? When man sinned, he defiled God's image upon him. He marred it. You see, what it amounts to is this. It's like a man going to a most beautiful painting or a beautiful tapestry or something like that and blotching it and besmirching it, or tearing it, and defacing it, throwing mud upon it, ruining it as it were. That's what sin leads to in men. God made men in his own image. In his own image and likeness made he him. In other words, the radical trouble with the human race is tonight that it's not got a true view of man, of man as God made him, as of men as God meant him and intended him to be and really produced him. What does this mean, the image and the likeness of God? Well, it means, if you like, that man was like God himself. God put something of his own being and nature into man. I'm one of those who is prepared to agree with those who teach that the very fact that man stands upright upon his two feet is a sign that he was made in the image of God. He's not like the animals on their four feet. Man is upright. He stands upright. He's looking to heaven as it were. God made him in his own image. He put into men some marvelous powers and propensities. Man is body, mind, and spirit. Body, soul, and spirit, if you like. I'm not concerned about the niceties of distinctions as between soul and spirit. That doesn't matter. But what I am emphasizing is this. That man was not only given a body, he was given a perfect body. And man, as he came out of the hands of God, was a perfect specimen. There was no blemish, there was no disease, there was no illness, there was nothing jarring, there was no blemish in any respect. Man was perfect physically. And God gave him also a mind and a soul. He gave him this remarkable power of being able to look at himself objectively. He gave him the power of contemplation. He gave him the power of mind and of reason so that he can work things out and follow the argument of God himself. God endowed men with all that. And then above and beyond all that, he gave men this capacity for God himself. 
The ability to enjoy God and to know God and to walk with God and to commune with God. That's a part of this great image and an essential rightness. Men had never sinned at that point. There was nothing evil in him. Evil didn't appeal to him at that point. He was entirely righteous without anything morally lacking in any respect or any blemish in any part of his perfect being. Man was upright and stood in the presence of what is sin well sin is that which has defiled God's work defiled God's image in men contrast what I've just been describing with man as he is today Man as you see him, man as you know him, man as you are yourself, and all that is true within you and round and about you. What a terrible thing sin is. You see, we tend to think of sin only in terms of actions, don't we? That's a sinful action, this isn't. And that's all we think sin is. My dear friend, that's the least important part about sin. The terrible thing, the awful thing about sin is this, that I, by nature, am so unlike what Adam was before he fell. Am I God's handiwork? Is this what God has made? Is this God's perfect creation? Look at men. Look at him in drunkenness. Look at him in vice and adultery. Look at him groveling in the gutters. Is that what God has made? That is to defile God's work. You are where you are now, said Ezekiel to the children of Israel, because when you were in the land, you defiled it. You besmirched God's work. But that isn't the end of sin. Sin not only defiles God's work, Sin is also insulting to God. And you notice how the prophet puts that plainly and clearly. He says that they defiled their own land in that way. And he tells us exactly what they did. Wherefore I poured my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land and for their idols wherewith they had polluted it. Oh, what a shocking, what a vile, what a foul, what a horrible thing is sin. It insults God. How well in this way. It sets up its own idols. And then it proceeds to worship them. It turns its back upon the only true and living God. And it begins to make its idols with its own hands. It says, let us make a God for ourselves. And the children of Israel had been doing that. They'd seen these idols in other lands. They said, this is rather wonderful. They're having a good time. They're doing well. And they don't live like we do. And they don't worship God as we are commanded to. Well, let's worship these other gods. And we'll have an equally good time. So they made gods of wood and of stone and of precious metals. And having made them, they bowed down to them. The bell and these other gods. Do you realize what it means? They turned from the glorious, everlasting, eternal God. The God of heaven and of earth, the creator of everything that is. And began to worship things made with their own hands. Is there any greater insult that a man can ever offer to God? But my dear friends, I'm not speaking only of children of Israel long ago in past centuries. Isn't this the modern world? The modern world has turned its back upon God. It doesn't worship God. It doesn't submit itself to God's laws. Well, what's it doing? It's worshipping its own gods. And it thereby is still insulting God as grievously as the children of Israel did of old. We no longer make our, goods, our gods perhaps in the same way. But there they are. A man's God is that which he lives for. 
A man's God is that for which he spends his money and gives his time. His God is that which he feels keenly about. The thing which he's prepared to fight about, as it were. What's a man's God? Well, it's that which is central in his life. That's the God. And men and women are still worshipping their own gods, the gods of their own creation and turning their backs upon the God of heaven in all his glory. They're worshipping their own country. They're worshipping themselves, their own position, their brains, their money, their position, their status, their wealth, their houses, their cars, their wives, their children. They are literally worshipping them. They put them before God. They dismiss God. They ignore his laws. Even his conscience speaking within them. They listen not to it. They brush it aside. They do what they want to do. They're offering their offerings to their God. And the Lord God Almighty is relegated to a background. Go and tell the children of Israel, said God to Ezekiel, that they're in Babylon because they've insulted me. They've set up their idols in my place. And they worshipped them. And they bowed before them. And they ignored me. Sin, I say, is not merely a matter of actions. It's that you're insulting the almighty God. And another thing that sin does, therefore, is this. It always gives God's enemies an opportunity of rejoicing against him. That's the message of this 20th verse. And when they entered unto the heathen, uh, whither they went, they profaned my holy name. When they, the heathen, said to them, These are the people of the Lord that have gone forth out of his land. What's it mean? It means this. When the heathen nations saw the children of Israel in the captivity of Babylon, they said, Those people used to say that this God of theirs was the only God and that he was a very wonderful God, that he was all-powerful. That was what they used to say about him. But they went on to say, they said, we don't think he's much of a God. If he were a God worthy of the name, they wouldn't allow this sort of thing to happen to them. Look at them, here they are, and out of their own land. Is that their God? Is that his handiwork? And so, you see, the enemies of God were given an opportunity of rejoicing and of ridiculing God because of the sin and the failure of the children of Israel. Now, this is a double message, isn't it? This is first a message to every Christian in this congregation. Christian man or woman, when you and I sin... The enemies of God rejoice. They say these people said that God had saved them. That Jesus shall save his people from their sins. That's what they said, but look at them. Whenever we sin, God's enemies rejoice. They said, this is the people. These are the people of the Lord and are gone forth out of his land. But it's not only true of Christians, it's true of all. Sin is that which makes the devil rejoice. Can't you see him there in the Garden of Eden? Once he's persuaded Eve and Eve Adam. Oh, how the devil rejoiced. Can't you hear the laughter of hell? Can't you hear the glorying of all those evil fallen spirits as they laugh at God and point at the man whom he'd made in his own image? There he is in fame and failure. And I say there is rejoicing in hell and amongst the enemies of God everywhere this evening as they look at the human race. 
They say, looking at men in sin and in shame and misery and wretchedness, fighting and quarreling and making a shambles of his world, is that the creature that the Almighty has made? Look at him. That's another part of the enormity of sin. But lastly, for me to close. Sin is something that is utterly offensive in the sight of God. Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. I'll tell you why the world is as it is and why men is ever guilty of sin. It's because we don't realize the holy character of God. We argue about things and try to defend ourselves and to say they're not so bad after all and excuse this and feel that the gospel's rather narrow. Why? Because we've no conception of the holiness of God. Sin to God is utterly abhorrent. It's hateful. It's what darkness is to light. It's what impurity is to perfect, absolute cleanliness. And God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Oh, beloved people, if only we knew something about this holiness of God, we'd realize the enormity of sin. What a terrible thing it is in the sight of God. Any impurity, any blemish, if you've got a perfectly white page, just one speck upon it ruins it all. It spiles it. Multiply that by infinity, and you have some faint conception of what sin is in the sight of a holy God. That's why the children of Israel are where they are in the captivity of Babylon. All this is so hateful and abhorrent in the sight of God that he punishes it. I'm not going to deal with this tonight. I simply tell you at the end, because of all this, God says, I poured my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land and for their idols wherewith they had polluted it. The world is as it is this evening because sin being what it is and God being what and who he is will inevitably be punished and has been punished and will be punished. Whether you like it or not, my friend, whether you understand it or not, in sin that's what you're guilty of in the sight of this holy God. And he's still there. He is still the maker and the creator and the sustainer of the entire universe. And his will and his way will be carried out. The children of Israel are a standing demonstration of this. And it's the one thing this world needs to realize this evening. When the children of Israel saw it and repented and looked at God, he took back those of them who had done so to the land and to Jerusalem and set them up again. When the prodigal realized the enormity and went home, he was received and forgiven. And that is the blessed message of the Christian gospel at this moment. When any man or woman in this congregation realizes what he's done against God and drops before him and acknowledges it all in utter abasement in sackcloth and ashes, and cries out unto him for mercy and compassion. He will be met by the glorious announcement that God receives him. That he's even provided a way.
whereby all his pollution and his guilt and his enormity has been dealt with and has been punished. God says, I'll pour forth my wrath, and he has poured it upon his only son, the wrath that you and I deserve, fell upon him. And because of that, God offers us a free pardon and a full forgiveness and a cleansing and a renewal and a return and a new beginning and an everlasting and a blessed hope. But my dear friend, don't talk to me about the love of God until you realize sin and its enormity and what you have done against God. That's the place to stop. Are you bruised and battered by the fall? Do you realize that you are, I mean? If you are, and if you realize it, come to me, saith one, and coming. Be at rest. He'll relieve you immediately. The pain, the agony, will be immediately assuaged and relieved. And once you feel that you're in his hands and undergoing his treatment, you will feel the bruises going out and vigor and power and ability becoming yours. And he'll invite you to take up your cross and follow him and he'll lead you to victory after victory, to joy unspeakable and full of glory And he'll show you, give you glimpses of a land and a realm where even your body will finally be delivered from every relic and vestige of results of sin and the fall. And in a glorified body, your glorified spirit will spend eternity in his holy presence. Thank God for the one who came to set at liberty them that are bruised in your pain and in your agony cry out to him and he will give you the relief 